Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the fascination with so-called reality shows. We disclose a useful term for misunderstood song lyrics. We note the passing of Jerry Lee Lewis. We remember a time when reality shows were really real. We celebrate a guy who gave weary passengers a place to wait for the bus. And we offer a few thoughts on a new kind of sociability as we age. The Old Dog's conversation is with Deborah Wisnand, a trainer of interfaith chaplains who knows quite a bit about end-of-life decisions. Stay with us. All right, Paul, you are on. What's on your mind? Oh, haven't you come up with a better question by now? What's on my mind? That's a good question. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's try that one for a change. Jim, what's on your mind? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. You know, we're talking about uh, people who participate in reality shows and people who watch those reality shows. That's it, right. We have a little pod nugget about that in, do. in this episode. Um I, I admit, I do not watch a lot of them. I have watched snippets of several, and I don't get the attraction. I'll tell you what. I think that most people think they're going to see somebody who's dumber than they are. Don't you? Well, maybe that's part of it. I mean, they, they would be in judgment of, uh, no matter what these people are doing, they're going to say, oh, man, they're stupid. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. But I'm going to watch them anyway. Yeah, sure. Uh, and and the different topics, uh, I mean, you, you can talk about all of these, um, for example, the dating type shows, you know, uh, where people uh, get together and then they're forced to choose. The guy's supposed to choose a woman from that limited group or the woman is supposed to choose a guy. Uh, right. And it's, a, it's going to be a, a disaster. Right, because these people never reveal their true selves. They're, they're posing, they're mm -hmm. posturing, yeah. uh, putting out their best self, and you know... Uh, when the cameras go off, hey, you are stupid. I don't like you. You know, that that kind of stuff probably goes on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, now I guess the attraction is it's a peep show. Hmm. You know, it's it's uh, peering into other people's lives mm -hmm. and, and probably, as you pointed out, judging them harshly. And, uh, uh, you know, they always have that refuge. Well, at least I'm not that dumb or I'm not that shallow. Uh, but I do enjoy watching shallow people. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, you take a program like Duck Dynasty, for example, an enormously popular program. And yet, yeah. who watches it? The people who live in the area where this is filmed? Or are these people who look down their noses at these folks? I'm sure they look down their noses. They're they're tuning in to see what kind of wild game people are eating this week. <laughs> Pass the squirrel, mom. <laughs> and look at we're in judgment of them too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. What can I tell you? Exactly. Yeah. So well, you know, and, and another factor, let's be honest, is these shows are cheap to produce. Mm -hmm. And and they pass themselves off as reality, unscripted. But you know, you know, there's some scripting going on, mm -hmm. or you know, the wh whoever's behind the camera is going. Uh, can you guys have a fight about that? You know, yeah, you know that's going on, uh, because totally unscripted would be like 
watching your family at dinner. All right. You know? Yeah. Well, now let me ask you this. Would you participate in such a show? Let's say a survivalist show. Would you be uh, willing to be cast onto a desert island with a bunch of strangers? In, in other words, uh, are, are you willing to expose yourself, Paul? Uh, how much is the pay? <laughs> and are you talking literally expose yes. myself? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and again, how much is the pay? <laughs> Did you know there was a term for mishearing something spoken or sung? I do that all the time. And what you think you heard is nonsensically humorous. This pod nugget is from the Interesting Facts website. Writer Sylvia Wright coined the term in 1954 in a Harper's essay. She recounted her mother reading her a poem that ended with the phrase, and laid him on the green. Wright misheard the phrase as... Lady Mondegreen, <laughs> and, and that's where the term came from. Mondegreens are especially common when you hear a song and you can't see the singer's face. It's even worse if the song is rock, since enunciation is not prized among rock singers. All right, I confess to a Mondegreen. When I first heard the BG song, More Than a Woman, I may have been disoriented by the falsetto, but I swear that I heard not more than a woman, but instead bald-headed woman. <laughs> and that's the lyric I sang for several years, never questioning the sense of it. Wait, wait a second. Bald-headed woman. You mean it's not bald-headed woman? He was called the killer because his high-energy rockabilly music was hard for another act to follow. Jerry Lee Lewis is dead at 87. His long life is a tribute to excess. <laughs> this pod nugget is from the Washington Post for October 28, 2022. He first recorded in 1956 for Sun Records, the same label that discovered Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. He outlived the other three, which is remarkable considering his lifelong battles with drugs, alcohol, and marriage. The greatest challenge to his career emerged in 1958 during a tour of England. The British press discovered that he had married a 13-year-old named Myra Gale Brown, who also happened to be his cousin. Jerry Lee was only 22 at the time, but Myra was his third wife. And to add to the outrage, he hadn't bothered to divorce wife number two. Well, he survived that scandal to create several more before his death. He was arrested multiple times, including an arrest for trespassing at Elvis Presley's home while carrying a loaded gun. And by the time he finished saying, I do, he had married seven times. But there's no denying the man was talented and one of a kind. He was elected to both the Rock and Roll and Country Music Halls of Fame. When inducted in the former, his biography described him as the wild man of rock and roll, embodying the most reckless and high-spirited impulses. Well, whichever direction he took after death, we're sure there's a whole lot of shaking going on. That's for sure. If reality shows are your cup of tea... There's enough tea these days to flush the kidneys of everyone in North America. This pod nugget is from Time Magazine for August 22nd through 29th, 
2022. As you can tell, we are not big fans of reality TV, but these shows are incredibly popular. I, I guess it's the same mentality as watching your neighbors through field glasses. Uh, to complete the analogy, your neighbors have to be willing to open their blinds and be watched. There are so many reality shows these days that it's difficult to tell them apart. They all seem contrived and somewhat scripted. In other words, they are not really real reality. I understand that they're cheap and easier to produce than a well-written drama, but is this how we want the 21st century to be remembered? Well, boomers, we are the generation that invented reality TV. We are patient zero for this epidemic. Think back to the early days of television. Do you remember a show called Candid Camera? Starting back in 1949, host Alan Funt placed unwitting people in absurd situations and captured their reactions on a hidden camera. Now, this was quite funny, and the contrived situations were clever. These victims of a prank were really real. And when Alan Funt said, smile, you're on candid camera, all was forgiven. The show continued in various iterations till the early 90s when it sort of died of lameness. So I guess we can't blame subsequent generations for lowering the taste of a nation. We met the enemy and it was us. So maybe we ought to give reality TV another chance? Hey, how about Top Chef? No, how about Say Yes to the Dress? Uh, too violent. How about Celebrity uh, Rehab with Dr. Drew? Okay, okay, that's it. It has voyeurism, humiliation, the whole thing. The whole nine yards. Every once in a while, we like to celebrate someone who did something nice. Not too often, so you think we're going soft, but often enough to make us somewhat likable, you know? This pod nugget is from Nice News for October 13th, 2022. You know, you can always count on Nice News for the soft underbelly of kindness. They wrote about a man named James Warren, who lives in Denver. One day, he witnessed a woman sitting in the dirt while waiting for a bus because there was no seating. Now, this moved James so much that he started building small benches and placing them at bus stops without seats. The benches are made from scrap wood and are strictly built for no more than two. And on top of each bench is the phrase, be kind. Okay, be kind, maybe a little much. Park your carcass or rest your cheeks would have given a little edge to this kind gesture. But we salute James Warren for his humanity, if not his sense of humor. That a way to howl at the moon, James. As we get older, it's harder to make new friends or stay in touch with old friends. If you're finding it difficult to socialize, Here's a few suggestions. This pod nugget is from SeniorLifestyleMag.com, dated October 8th, 2022. If your neighbors are looking younger, maybe even a lot younger, consider moving to a 55-plus community. These communities have planned activities that make it easy to socialize with people your age. In a concentrated community of seniors, it's much easier to find new, like-minded friends. If you don't want to change your surroundings, try developing new interests. A good resource is an old hobby or activity that you used to enjoy, or maybe a whole new pursuit that sounds interesting. Many local senior centers offer hobby and socializing opportunities. Computers and modern technology can seem daunting to people our age, but this is the way people communicate these days. There are many free and cheap classes available to seniors to brush up on your technological skills. Taking a course occasionally is a good way to stay sharp. Then, 
Put your new tech skills to work. It's easy to figure out how to have Zoom meetings with your friends and family. If you haven't already, join Facebook. It's a good way to get in touch with old friends from high school or college. Or maybe join some Facebook groups that have interests that you share. Charitable organizations are always looking for volunteers. Find a nonprofit that fits your interests and get involved. It's also a great way to meet people committed to helping others. They make the best friends. Well, the message is, don't retire to a recliner. There are many options for staying sociable as you age. You just have to get over the fear of trying something new. Deborah Wisnand is an ordained minister and a seasoned trainer of interfaith chaplains. Her career has given her a unique perspective on end-of-life decisions. This is an uncomfortable but important topic for people our age, so we've divided the conversation into two parts. Part one appears in this episode and part two in the next. To get us started, I would be interested in uh, your career choices that you made uh, once you left college. I went to Texas Tech. Texas Tech. And then I went to Rice University, and then I went to Harvard Divinity School. Okay. It's, at some point, you made a choice then to uh, to become a chaplain, it seems. Is that right? Well, what happened was when I fin- just finished at Texas Tech, I had to make a choice, or I made a choice between majoring in Spanish and English, or ma- majoring in Spanish for my graduate work, or I decided to go actually with religious studies, which it was called at that time. So I made the choice to pursue some kind of religious vocation with my master's degrees and went that direction, actually uh, hoping that I would become some kind of religious professional. And gradually that took the shape of an ordained minister, even though I happened to be a Southern Baptist at the time. Yeah, I, I guess you also made a choice that you wanted to serve as a chaplain rather than being a senior minister at a church. Correct, correct. I did get to work on staff at a church in Houston as a staff assistant when I was doing my graduate degree at Rice. So I had some kind of experience working with the staff. But when I came back from Cambridge after finishing my um, academic master's degree in theology and theological ethics, actually, uh, and I came back to Houston, I couldn't get a job as a Southern Baptist woman. So I decided to take the training to be a chaplain and I would be more marketable because I would have other skills. And what happened was I got into chaplaincy training and it fit like a glove because I had also an education background. So I stayed, became a chaplain and then got the certification to train interfaith chaplains. And that's what I've done for almost 40 years. And and that's taken you to many places. Many places. (laughs) Both in terms of spiritual care, education, and ethics. There was a time where I functioned strictly as an ethics consultant for a for-profit ethics company out of Berkeley. How do you make that connection between your chaplaincy career and bioethics consultation? Jim, it came easily, actually, because my specialization as a chaplain was in oncology. And so I was working with people who were gravely ill, dying, and would die all the time. Hmm. And so I began to deal with those ethical questions at end of life and treatment decisions, just as a part of chaplaincy, while I was also doing things as an educator. Hmm. And at that time, there were no special training programs, there was no special certification to become an ethicist. So I did as others were doing, which is uh, self trained, and did a lot of reading went to a lot of conferences, 
and then became able to be an ethics consultant uh, on an ongoing basis for a while. Wow. And what are the specific ethics that you were most concerned about? Um, at the time that I went into them, it was end-of-life issues, very much like what we may talk about here today as I saw patients um, dying prolonged in which their bodies were actually dying and treatment choices were being made every day in a hospital uh, or a nursing home, but more particularly a hospital where I was working to continue aggressive treatment, to continue treatments that were, if you will, sustaining a dying body. And at that point, we were just beginning to have discussions. There weren't even advanced directives in the country. They started to come out in the 80s. So we were just beginning to have discussions about how long do we prolong a life when somebody's actually dying. And that was those were my major concerns. And a lot of what we dealt with at the time was uh, decision making about beginning life sustaining treatment or withdrawing life sustaining treatment. And that's still at the core of a lot of decisions that need to be made in the area of end of life care in a hospital setting. Now, you, uh, when we were talking previously, you mentioned you wanted to uh, show a distinction between hospice care and palliative care. Is that correct? Yes. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, hospice care has been around for a number of decades now. It started in England, but it's a part of our healthcare system. It's a part of insurance payments, Medicare payments. It's covered if you go into hospice care. And it is for persons or patients, that is, people who become patients, whom physicians have made a statement that they have six months or less to live, even though they will get treatment. They would still die within six months or less. And that is hospice care. The majority of it takes place in a person's home. It does not take place in a facility, in a, in a hospital, in a, in a physical building. It takes place at home where there can be people that come by. There's a doctor over the hospice who's going to monitor medicines. But a person will be in their home. They're required to have a caregiver that is with them 24-7. So they have somebody living there with them. And they have nurse visits two to three times a week. They have home health visits regularly during the week. They have social worker visits. They have nutritionist visits. They may have a chaplain if they choose to have that service every week. And there's a constant team. There's ongoing care for the person in hospice at home. They have choices to make. Um, They can decide if they want to sit on their porch in their rocker. They can decide if they want to watch a movie. They can decide if they want to play cards. They can decide if they want to rest. And all of that is while they're getting what is called comfort care, not aggressive care, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, That is treatment that's actually, again, aggressively sustaining the body while the body is dying. And so that is hospice care. Palliative care has arisen in the last years since hospice care, although it's always been around, it didn't have a name. And it is actually a medical specialty. A physician gets specialist training to be a palliative care physician, just like they might be a pediatric physician or an oncologist. So they become a palliative care physician. And palliative care is care that is to provide relief 
from symptoms and stress, symptoms and stress of serious illness. So it's not necessarily end of life care. Palliative care can start right after you're born. Palliative care can start at any time if you're diagnosed with a serious illness that has serious symptoms and side effects. And it is a trained team. Ideally, it's a trained team. And they would see you in the hospital setting. They would see you while you're still in a hospital setting and they would coordinate care with your regular doctors, but they would be focused on your entire family in dealing with the stress as well as the physical, emotional, social, spiritual symptoms of your serious illness. I think a lot of people our age don't give much thought to end-of-life choices. Uh, we really don't want to talk about death. It also makes it very difficult if something happens, if your family doesn't know what you want and you can't speak for yourself. And that's where advanced directives come in. And what kind of documents are involved with an advanced directive? In Texas, we have two. We have one that's informally known as a living will. The actual official name for that is directive to physicians and family. And it gives one a, an ability to select whether they want treatment or don't want aggressive treatment. I'm sorry, not treatment. Whether they want aggressive treatment or they want comfort treatment if they cannot speak for themselves. The second document some people consider more important and it's the medical power of attorney. Mm -hmm not the power of attorney, which is for financial things, but the medical power of attorney. And the medical power of attorney allows you to name some person that can speak for you when you cannot. Again, both of these documents only come, become active when the doctor declares that you are not competent to make your own decisions or you cannot communicate about them. The key to having a medical power of attorney is literally to talk about all these issues because you select someone, you can choose an alternate if that person is not available, to communicate with the physicians about what you want. Clearly, you need to have talked to that person a lot before you pick them and write them down in the document. You need to be really honest with them about what you want and know that they're willing to do it. Um, what about the um, so-called DNR uh, provision? Is that part of the directives or is that a separate document? The DNR can only be executed by a physician while you're in the hospital or you're in a healthcare facility. Hmm. I cannot make one out for myself. The physician makes that out, but makes it out in conversation with me and if I can't talk with my family. Um, one of the things about advanced directives is in both of those advanced directive documents, you can put limitations on treatment and limitations on what the medical power of attorney can do for you and make decisions about. I really believe and advise that if I'm going to make out one of those documents, I don't want to put limitations. There may be a treatment that becomes available for something I have that is really an aggressive medical treatment, but I don't even know what it is today. So 
So unless I'm going to revisit my document in five years, I may leave out a treatment and the doctor says, oh, you left, you have this whole list of things you don't want, but you didn't list this one. So some of the treatments that people need to talk about with their families, if they're thinking about what I don't want is to be explicit, but I advise not putting these in the documents. But aggressive medical treatment would include, as we've already talked about, CPR to start the heart back again. It would involve going on a ventilator or a breathing machine when I can't breathe by myself. It would involve um, antibiotics. It would involve autotritial nutrition and hydration. These are the kind of treatments that aren't done in hospice. Because literally, a doctor has declared that this person is going to die. And this treatment is going to be given to a body that's shutting down. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.